there is an expectation, I think, especially for marginalized writers, but especially, especially for writers of color in historical fiction to, air quotes, teach something mm. to the mm. reader. Hi, I'm Abby, and welcome to Criminal Types, where we dig into the real world cases, research, and obsessions that keep your favorite crime writers up at night. Hi, Criminal Types. I'm Abby, and welcome to this week's episode. Today, I've got a great conversation in store for you with debut author Isabel Cañas. But before we get into that, I wanted to take a moment to answer a few reader requests for book recommendations that I've gotten over on Instagram recently. I always love hearing what kind of books you are looking for, and I've pulled a few of those recommendation requests to answer here on Criminal Types today. The theme of this round of recommendations is spooky, supernatural-ish suspense novels. All right, so... I have got the requests here, and I'm going to read them to you one by one, and then you'll give us the perfect books for what these people are looking for. So the first person asked for something. These are the keywords with snow, creepy house, eerie sounds, possible ghosts, and different timelines. I mean, that sounds like a stumper right off the bat, Abby. So do you have something uh, possible ghosts? I, I like that one. They're not sure. I actually have the absolute perfect book for this person. And I was very excited when I saw this recommendation request come in because immediately I knew it was the opportunity for me to talk about one of the books that I think is just a hidden gem, a seriously underrated, possibly supernatural suspense novel. So get your pens out. The book is called I Remember You by Irsa Sigurdardotir. Irsa is an Icelandic crime writer. She's known as Iceland's queen of crime, and she's written a couple of different series, but she also has some amazing standards standalone novels. Irsa loves all things spooky and creepy, and I think her love of the horror genre shines through in her standalone suspense novels in particular. So it's not a straight-up horror novel. I would say it still has a strong kind of mystery and suspense component to it. But the basic premise of I Remember You, you basically have two different plot lines going on. So we have the two different two different timelines happening. Um, in one of those timelines, a group of friends travel to this kind of far-flung abandoned village on a, a peninsula in Iceland. And they are going to purchase this rundown old house that's there. They're going to turn it into kind of a, a rental property that they can rent out during the summer. But of course, because they want to have it ready for summer, they're there in the winter to get it all fixed up. So group of friends travels to this isolated location. And of course, a snowstorm comes in and they find themselves trapped in the house, but they might not be alone there. And there might be something lurking within the house's walls that is not too keen for them to actually renovate. So that's one timeline. Then a separate timeline, you have this doctor living in um, a small town in Iceland, but there are actual people there, unlike that other uh, abandoned village. And his son has just gone missing. So he is searching for his missing child. And his kind of hunt to track down his son's whereabouts will ultimately end up converging with the storyline following our ill-fated friends trying to renovate that old house. Oh, my God. I can't believe that one didn't stump you. I think that's also what we should call this segment going forward is, is stump stump the Abbey. Stump the Abbey. I like it. I take it as a challenge. Um, I pride myself on not being too easily stumped. So yeah, I mean, if possible ghosts and different timelines couldn't stump you, it's going to be tough. Um, all right. And also that recommendation uh Reminds me of, of one of my big life mottos, which is never renovate. Never renovate. I like it. Honestly, just buy new. This is this just is buy case. new or just take what you get. Don't renovate. I will yeah. also quickly say that there is um, so there actually was a really great movie adaptation of I Remember You. It's an Icelandic film. It used to be available on Netflix. I'll have to fact check if it's still there, but it's one of these rare like book to film adaptations that I think just nails it. They do a fantastic job. So do read the book first because the, the book is excellent, but they did a great job with the movie adaptation as well. Cool. All right. So let's see. Coming up next on Stump the Abbey, someone asked for a book recommendation that has a strong witchy vibe where they do not end up caving in in the end to conformity. 
I love this request. So I had a couple possible contenders, but I think the closest to what this person is looking for is a book called The Lighthouse Witches by C.J. Cook. So this is a story about a single mother who is commissioned to paint a mural at this old lighthouse. It's like a hundred-year-old lighthouse on this small Scottish island. So she moves to this island with her daughters. And while they're there, I don't want to say too much, but while they're there, some strange, inexplicable things start happening that involve local lore. And one of these girls um, ends up going missing. And then fast forward years later, she returns. But there's something very strange going on because she should have aged, you know, say, maybe about a decade, maybe even more in the time she's been gone. But when she reappears, she's the same age as she was when she'd gone missing. And one of her sisters is trying to figure out what happened to her sister in that time she was gone and could some of those local legends be real? Oh, man. Second (laughs) motto, never go to a lighthouse. We're learning a lot of life tips. Yeah. Um, All right. So that's a great one. Could not be stumped there, Abby. So third one is third request. They ask for something that matches the gothic horror and intensity and romance of Crimson Peak. I love, I maybe I've said this about every single request, but I love this request because I am a huge Crimson Peak fan. That is a seriously underrated movie. I, I love it so much. So this is also the perfect request for today's episode because the book I'm going to recommend to you is in fact the debut novel by the author who I got to speak with for today's episode. So that book is The Hacienda by Isabel Cañas. It is a fantastic, lush, immersive, beautifully written and seriously creepy gothic story story of suspense. It follows a woman who it's set, I should say it's set just after the Mexican war War of independence. And it follows a woman who she gets married and her husband owns this hacienda out in the countryside. So they travel out to this new estate, which is going to be her new home. Her husband has to leave. He has to go, you know, for work back to the city. So she finds herself there, um, you know, alone with only kind of the house's staff to keep her company. As she settles in to her new home, she can't shake this feeling that there is something in the house that does not want her there. And she ends up enlisting the help of a very unconventional local priest to kind of assess what's going on with her home. And I'm not going to say anything else, but I will say this story has all of the spooky, spine-tingling, gothic elements that you're looking for. It also has a bit of a forbidden romance vibe that I have to say I really loved. And I'm a reader for whom I think a romance element in a thriller or suspense novel can be it can be a little hit or miss for me, but I think Isabel Cañas did an amazing job of weaving that into this book. So I would highly, highly recommend The Hacienda. Wow, and what a coincidence, because look what today's episode is. What a coincidence. What a coincidence. So for today's episode, I am so excited to share the conversation that I had with Isabel Cañas. She is a Mexican-American speculative fiction writer. Her debut novel, The Hacienda, was published last year. And as I just said, I cannot recommend this book highly enough. This is a perfect book for you if you love gothic suspense, if you love those horror elements, if you love characters whose fates you are going to become seriously invested in, Isabel does a beautiful job crafting this story. It is as gorgeously written as it is spooky. And I had a great time talking with Isabel. And in this conversation, we are going to explore everything from um, the unexpected thing that Isabel and I have in common, which is that we both grew up in houses that may or may not have been haunted. We discussed that. We discussed the gothic influences on her story and lots more. I had a great time talking with Isabel, and I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. All right, well, Isabel, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited to talk with you. We have so much to discuss, and I normally like to start these conversations asking authors what got them into the world of mystery and suspense, but we've had kind of a whole other conversation at an event we did together, Mm -hmm. so I know you have an amazing story to tell us about kind of your first introduction to spooky things. Can you tell us about the house you grew up in, please? (laughs) So I lived in a number of houses when I was growing up. I think I, my, my mom counted and I think we, we never lived in a house for more than four years in between when I was born and when I went to college. And so we moved all over the place, like in the burbs of Chicago, Mexico City, Southern California. Um, But there was one house in particular. And because I've lived in a lot of houses, I kind of like 
consider myself a bit of an expert on definitely <laughs> vibes in houses. Um, but there was one house in particular that I lived in in the late 90s in the northern suburbs of Chicago. Um, it was like red brick at the end of this quiet cul-de-sac. And it was like covered with ivy. I love uh, it was it. built in the 1920s. And when we first moved in, um, it required a ton of renovation because it had been like two separate apartments. And so parts of it were gutted. And you know, when you're a five-year-old, six-year-old, that's Deeply fascinating stuff. Absolutely. It's like, ooh, dark corners. Ooh, dust everywhere. Um, But this house had some vibes. And I think, in fact, I'm sure they were mostly concentrated in the basement, but also my bedroom closet. And so the basement in particular is a place I spend a lot of time because um, my dad's preferred method of uh, disciplining us like four rowdy girls um, I'm the second of, well, now five, but at the time it was four of us and we're all very mouthy and back talky. And so when we got in trouble, which I often did, um, it was time for a timeout. And so we sat in a timeout corner for as many minutes as we were old. So for five minutes, six yep. minutes, seven minutes, <laughs> to sit in the corner and think about what you did. When you were really bad, uh, which I often was, uh, the timeout corner got moved to the bottom of the basement stairs. Oh, my gosh. And so I had, like, ample time to sit down there and kind of ruminate on everything about that dark, unfinished space. You know, there were, like, exposed beams. There were all these big pipes from, like, the 20s and 30s that made all sorts of weird gurgly noises. You know, I had just had a lot of time down there to think about what it was that made me feel... So weird to be down there. And there were two there were two storage areas at the very back of this basement. One had like this door that was always locked and had this big like the door itself was um it was wooden as many doors are, but it just looked like really old and had this like swinging big wooden latch Ooh. thing. I think there was a boiler back there. I don't yeah. know. There was one storage room in which we kept like big suitcases and stuff. But, you know, poking around back there, I always got this feeling that I was unwelcome <sighs> and that I was being watched. I have goosebumps. That is so creepy. And I, you know, this is something I kept to myself for many, many years. Yeah. Um, My family is quite religious, so we definitely... Uh, have thoughts and feelings about yeah. things we cannot see. Yeah. Uh, I personally am no longer religious, but like <laughs> perhaps in my own little way. Yeah. I am spiritual because, again, belief in things that we cannot right. see that kind of wig me out. Um, but my aunt, who was also like very much not a religious person, um, she used to babysit us a lot because she went to university nearby. And when I started talking about this when the Hacienda came out and, you know, I had forums in which to voice my thoughts on all things spooky. She she messaged me being like, no, that house was totally haunted. Oh my gosh. So she felt it too. 100%. 100%. Yeah. She's like my kindred spirit and spooky vibes in my family because she's also really into horror and true crime and all of that stuff. But when she said that, I was like, thank you. Validated. It wasn't just me overreacting or me being afraid of the dark, although being afraid of the dark certainly was a part of that. Um, There were parts of that house where you just felt like you were being watched. And, you know, who can explain that? Not me. I mean, you can't explain it. And this, I mean, I just love that you've had, well, I don't love that you've had these experiences Mm -hmm. because they're very spooky. But I also grew up in a house that we now know for sure was haunted. Really? I Oh my gosh, I kid you not. And I actually have to admit, I was always a little bit jealous because I was never the one, this feels silly to say, but I was never the one who like saw the ghosts or felt the presences. It was always my younger brother. So Ooh. I'm fascinated by the fact that you actually experienced this firsthand. I mean, oh. like experience, like this is the thing. It's like, and I think I and maybe other people who have lived in houses or spent time in spaces a little bit like this. Um, I kind of feel like I've for years I've been gaslighting myself, like yeah. saying like, oh, yeah. it couldn't have been real. Oh, I was just a silly kid afraid of the dark because like I didn't see anything. Right. Right. It was the you feeling. Know? Yeah. It just this um omnipresent feeling that just never went away that yeah. something in the closet was watching me. Oh my gosh. It is so I it, I'm like have goosebumps because and I I will just quickly tell I you that too. like like all the little hairs of my know. standing on end. <laughs> I know, but I love this stuff so much and I find it so fascinating because I feel like I always thought of myself as a very quote unquote rational person. Oh, but completely. then I saw, you know, for us it it all well 
in hindsight, I think it had started earlier than that. But my and I won't tell the whole story because I don't know if my little brother wants me telling the whole story. <laughs> Just blasting it across. I know, sorry, always. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, growing up, my little brother was always afraid of the basement in the house mm-hmm. that we grew up in. And I should also say, I come from a religious family as well. My dad's a yep. pastor, so we share that in common. Yep. That background. Um, and I remember my little brother never wanted to go into the basement, and my mom would send me down there, and she would make me look around and then like report back to my brother oh my God, that it was. That safe down there. And now I'm like, mom, like, what were you doing? But she thought he was just, you know, a kid with an active imagination. Yeah. And it wasn't until we then moved into a different house that was older. And my brother started having a really hard time in that house and started feeling like he was being watched. And it really affected him very deeply. Um, And it wasn't until that point that my mom started to think, okay, maybe there's like something actually going on here. And it, I mean, everything that followed was wild and really made me question my own skepticism about all of this stuff. You know, I was just speaking of like having siblings go down into the basement and like (laughs) suss it out, report back. Um, I was chatting about this with my older sister recently and she avoided the basement like crazy. Yeah. So she's the eldest of five. So, you know, she's a very no, as an older sister, you understand. (laughs) Very no-nonsense attitude, very business-like, very much large and in charge. And she would, whenever, like, it was time for her to take a time out at the bottom of the basement stairs, she would bargain her way out of that like it was no one's business. She would, like, cut deals with my dad. Like, you can love my favorite stuffed animal for a week as long as my time out can be at the top of the basement stairs. Yeah. Like, she just did not want to go down there. And, like, you know, I also remember that we... Uh, because there were so many of us, um, we had no pair, like a live in no pair at one point. Um, and her bedroom was in the basement. And I just remember how much she hated it. Oh she my hated it so, so much and like would write back to her family being like, this is the worst. And, you know, it was like that part of the basement was like finished. She had her own bathroom. It wasn't yeah. like a, a gross place. She wasn't in the room with the boiler. No, and the she thing was on, on the, the opposite side, <laughs> the opposite side of the basement. Thank goodness. But like I'm thinking back, like as somebody who now like looks back on this time in my life and this space is like with these feelings that I now have that have been slightly validated by like my sister, my aunt. I'm like, oh my God, that poor young woman. What were you doing to that poor? (laughs) Literally. That's the start of a horror movie in and of itself. Um, I'm writing this down. (laughs) Please (laughs) take notes. (laughs) The au pair in the basement, the poor, poor girl. Yeah, she was great. We loved her, but like she did not like that living situation at all. And like, honestly... Same, though. (laughs) But it's so funny how these, like, vibes, and I remember when we talked previously, I remember you talking about vibes and how important vibes were to your writing. And it is funny how these vibes, like, can affect us even if we're not seeing an actual whatever manifestation of a ghost or something. It's like an energy. It's just a feeling. It's a sensation. It's something, it's that je ne sais quoi that you can't put your finger on when you walk into a space. And because I lived in so many houses, you know, I became used to being like, okay, this is my new room. This is my new home. I'm going to settle, whatever. And I would just kind of have to make peace with the fact that sometimes I didn't feel super safe or like at peace in the yeah. place that I now had to call, you know, my bedroom. Yeah. And it's weird that it, it is weird to talk about because you can't put your finger on what exactly it was. It's like, oh, well, the shadows were weird in the hallway. Yeah. The house I lived in after, my family lived in after we lived in that place that my aunt is convinced is haunted. And I believe her because she is an authority on such matters, <laughs> folks. She really is. Um, I... That house, I still have nightmares about that house that I lived in from only 2000 to 2004. And, you know, I was about wow, nine yeah. years old. But ever, I have so many nightmares where I'm in this exact corridor in the house and one exact bedroom. And they're always nightmares where I'm being haunted. I'm being watched. I'm being followed. And it's always this one specific part of the house, no other part of the house. And I'm like, why is that in this, like, very bright, white California McMansion. Like, right. why did I feel so intensely wigged out as a yeah. kid? Why? Yeah. That is absolutely, it's absolutely wild. So do you think that back, I mean, back then, could you have predicted for yourself that you would end up taking these experiences and maybe like using them as a little bit of inspiration for like, a writing career? Honestly, at the time, probably not. But looking back, I'm like, well, duh. Like, obviously, you <laughs> obviously. were this is the best preparation I was you could being ever formed. <laughs> My dad once asked me, like, why do you write these things? And I'm like, sir, you raised me in a household yeah. where, like, 
a phrase I used when we had our previous conversation at an event was like we lived in like a speculative reality where when you're in a deeply religious household, you are so familiarized and desensitized to conversations about like life and death, eternity, eternal damnation, demons, you know, angels, These things are just as real and present to you as anything else. Exactly. So in in one way, it's like no wonder that I became really involved in speculative fiction as an adult, Um, why I was so drawn to fantasy as as a kid, but now as a maturing author, why I get, I am so drawn to horror in particular and the supernatural because like that was a very formative experience for me. I'm like, well, dad, you, you done made this person. So absolutely. And it is so interesting to me. I know we've like talked about this a little bit, but it's so interesting to me, the correlation between that religious upbringing and maybe an openness or some sort of, I don't know, I'm nodding ability to (laughs) supernatural and the otherworldly. It's fascinating. And I, I mean, to get to your book, just a little bit. Like, I really love the way you kind of play with that in your novel, too. And we do have to actually discuss your book as well. (laughs) Much to discuss on that front, too. Um, But maybe you could just tell us a little bit about kind of your transition from starting out as a fantasy, because you were Mm -hmm. writing fantasy, is that correct? Your kind of transition from writing fantasy to horror that you're writing now. Yeah. Um, So I went out on submission uh, for the uninitiated. Uh, Going out on submission means you and your agent have polished up a manuscript and your agent starts sending it to editors at big five or indie publishing houses. So I had gone on submission. It's the last step that you take before, like, ideally that book gets bought and then it's on the road to being a published novel on bookstore and library shelves. Hooray. Um, So I'd gone on submission with two young adult fantasy manuscripts in 2017, 2018, 2019. And those at the time, and I think still today, there's a lot of chatter about how YA fantasy is oversaturated, blah, blah, blah. It's a tough market to break into. Fine, whatever. Uh, We received a lot of rejections. It was really, really discouraging. And that second manuscript that we sent on submission in particular was one that I had poured um, a lot of vulnerability into. It was very informed by my Mexican heritage, which is something that I was scared to write about before because I thought it would be rejected out of pocket. (laughs) Funnily enough, this book was. (laughs) You know, it wasn't a perfect book, but it was something that I believed very passionately in and I was really passionate about. And so I was on my honeymoon in Mexico City in October of 2019 when I received um, a rejection on a revise and resubmit, which means an editor at a big five publishing house had said to my agent, this book is great. I see a lot of potential. Can you change, have the author talk, like think about changing X, Y, and Z and send me a revised version. Yeah. So I spent six months working on that oh and gosh. she rejected it. Oh. And so I received this um, rejection while I was in a museum uh, that I loved as a kid, the National Museum of Anthropology in Mexico City, which is full of stuff that I was just fascinated with as a kid and that really informed that fantasy novel. Oh, wow. Um, And I just kind of broke down in the lobby crying. Oh, no. (laughs) And as my husband, like, comforted me, he was like, you know, you got to get back in the saddle, pick yourself back up. You know, he's very, he's Canadian. He's very upbeat and optimistic. I love that. Oh, my (laughs) gosh. We all need that in our corner. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Big on the pep talks. And so, you know, I wiped my tears. I sniffed. And I was like, okay, I have uh, a fork in the road before me. I had two projects that were kind of sitting at the back of my head. One was an adult fantasy novel that I had been working on and (laughs) I'm still working on. Um, And the other was a haunted house novel that was set in uh, Mexico in the 19th century. And at the time, I was kind of going on a haunted house bender because I was staying in an Airbnb that gave me the creeps (laughs) Um, uh, before my husband and I went on our honeymoon. And I... I just really wanted a haunted house book that would scratch a specific itch. You know, I was reading um, Mariana Enriquez's uh, Things We Lost in the Fire, which is a short story uh, collection that had one haunted house story that just gave me the creeps. But I was just hunting and hunting and hunting for a horror novel that um, gave me the experience that I wanted and I couldn't find it. And I realized damn it, I have to write it. That old adage, right? Exactly. (laughs) If there's something you really want to read and you can't find it, you might have to be the person to do it. And so so my transition to horror kind of comes from a a moment of career, like a career come to Jesus talk with myself where I was like, okay, we've struck out twice with the fantasy, you know, bat, so to speak. Uh, It might be time to pivot and try something new. So I thought I was writing YA horror because I'd read a few YA horrors. And I sent a first draft 
like of the first half of the book to my agent. And she was like, ha ha, Isabel, this is not YA. <laughs> and, you know, she mostly at the time she mostly represented Kidlet and I'd signed with her for for YA novels. And I, yeah. I, I like I remember like having a meltdown because I thought I had failed again. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. But it, yeah. she was like, absolutely not. Just make it the book that you want it to be. And I'll sell it. And and she did. So oh, and that became the Hacienda. That became the Hacienda. Yeah. So maybe you can give us kind of the elevator pitch. What is the Hacienda Absolutely. all about? Absolutely. Oh, I love doing this. So the Hacienda is um it's kind of the haunting of Hill House or um Mexican Gothic meets Rebecca. It's a very gothic novel set in 19th century Mexico after its war from independence from Spain. And it's about a young woman named Beatriz who, because of she finds herself in a really tough financial position. Um, decides to marry this mysterious widower. (laughs) Nobody seems to know how his first wife died. Nobody seems to really ask enough questions about it, but she moves with him to his remote um, ancestral home in the Mexican countryside, an hacienda called Hacienda San Isidro. And she lives there alone while he returns to the capital to work. And she quickly discovers that it is profoundly haunted and that nobody seems to believe her. She is, you know, constantly gaslit by other people who live on the hacienda, including her new husband's uh, sister, who is very distant and refuses to go into the house, especially at night, um, by the people who work there. At a loss, she reaches out for help, and she finds it in some unexpected places. Uh, Believe it or not, in the church, in the form of a young priest named Padre Andres, who has a lot of history with the hacienda. And I love what you were saying earlier about gaslighting yourself, kind of. Oh, and completely. I was thinking about Beatrice and thinking about her experience. She's totally gaslit throughout yes. this novel. People yes. keep trying to convince her to basically not believe what she knows to be true. Yes. And I, I thought that was so interesting what you said earlier about kind of gaslighting yourself and uh-huh. trying to talk yourself out of believing these experiences. Because I think one of the classic things that draws me as a reader, as a woman, and as a woman who was raised in a very patriarchal religious uh, household to the Gothic is the interrogation of what madness is Mm. and what specifically madness in women means. Because there were a lot of instances in my young adulthood where there were conversations about how like, oh, well, this woman is crazy. Or like, you know, people, women in my family, oh, they're crazy or you're being crazy. And I'm like, well, what does that mean when it's coming from a certain mouthpiece. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And what does it mean to be experiencing it for yourself? What does it mean to think, am I going crazy because I experience these things and people tell me I'm nuts? Yeah. And so when it comes to like my influences for this novel, like Rebecca, the unnamed Mrs. DeWinter in Mm -hmm. Rebecca is constantly questioning whether or not she's losing her marbles when she's living in Manderley. And You know, you kind of question along with her. But, I mean, a huge part of me was always rooting for her to find out that, you know, Rebecca was really a ghost haunting Manderley. Like, that is what I wanted out of that book. Yeah. I wanted her to fight back. Yeah. To really, you know, uncover the mystery. But then, you know, it has more of an ambiguous, you know, Rebecca, spoilers for this book that has been out for, like, nearly, (laughs) like, how many decades? Rebecca is not really a ghost. Her, her, Her ghostly presence is threatening and it's um, stifling and it's suffocating and it is powerful and it's incredible to read about, but she's not actually a real ghost. And I was like, okay, but what if real ghost though? Yeah. So, well, I love it. And you do get that triumphant arc. I mean, this this is no spoiler to say her arc over the course of this story is so triumphant and she totally fights back and it's kind of in her blood. Her father was a general, Mm -hmm. is that right? So kind of in her blood to like never back down. She's not going to go down without a fight. And I love the way you put that spin and give that kind of unexpected angle to a gothic story. I really wanted that in the books I was reading. Like I wanted that from Rebecca. I also, I think I reread The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson twice before writing this book. There Mm -hmm. are some nods to it. I think it's pretty obvious. Structurally, definitely, you know, chapeau to Shirley Jackson there. But I also felt with the the protagonist of Hill House, like, fight back more. That's what I wanted. And maybe this is me projecting because I'm a very passionate person. I'm a fighter. Um, I definitely (laughs) (laughs) maybe this is the part of every 
author, I think, agrees that there are parts of themselves in every one of their characters. And the part of me that went into Beatrice is the part that will not go down without a fight. I Teeth, love it. claws, and all. Yeah, I love it. It's amazing. And I. it's funny because, you know, just hearing your story, even just to get this book published, like, mm-hmm. that took a lot of perseverance. I feel like that has to be a little bit of your fight right yes. there. <laughs> yes, I will not back down. I will not stop. If there's something I want, you know— well, sorry to anyone who's in my way. I love it. I admire <laughs> that so much. Admire it wholeheartedly. I want to talk a little bit about the time period in which this story yes. is sex. If like there's so many like layers to unpack with that time period. But maybe you could just kind of set the scene for readers who might not know what was going on in Mexico at that time. Like mm-hmm. what what was happening when this story is set? Yeah. So this book takes place in 1823. Mexico won its independence from Spain in 1821 after a really protracted and brutal period of um a war of independence. And that war was, I guess, almost like a civil conflict for 11 years. There were two different forces um, in Mexico who were fighting against each other. The first were the insurgents, the people who wanted independence from Spain, uh, liberals, people of lower classes, indigenous people, um, parts of the priesthood. And the other force um, were uh, conservative forces who wanted to keep um, Spanish rule in Mexico. And these forces were often landowners, hacendados like um, Rodolfo, who owns Hacienda San Isidro in the book, and uh, his family. Um, And these forces were at war for 10 years. And then in the 11th year of this war, because of uh, Bourbon politics back on the continent in Spain um, and a switch of leadership there, the conservative forces in Mexico looked at Spain and were like, oh, wow, those people are now too liberal for us. Like, we actually don't want to stay with them. So they switch sides. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like the politics at the beginning of this book. Like I went through several drafts trying to make it, yeah. like, you know, not too muddled because it's not like it, it informs the setting. Yeah. But it doesn't dominate the story. So I didn't want it to overwhelm. But basically these conservative forces then switched sides in the war, aligned themselves with the insurgents and within the year had, you know, shaken off colonial rule and were... Um, not yet the Republic of Mexico, but the Empire of Mexico. Yeah. So there was a Spanish emperor for, I think, like two years. And then he was overthrown by liberals. And then the Republic of Mexico was formally founded in, um, I think, in 1824. Uh, it's very messy. And so what this protracted civil war basically did to the country was um, a lot of men died in this conflict. So, I mean, <laughs> if you're fighting for 11 years and— there were I remember reading accounts like in some battles, like men were so impoverished that they didn't they didn't have guns. They were fighting with sticks and wow. rocks, you know. There were a lot of opportunities uh, for widows and women who were orphaned or who lost um, brothers or other male family figures in this war to step into situations where they had more independence, either as landowners like Juana um, when her when the war was being fought, she definitely took the reins of Hacienda San Isidro and also in cities as the owners of businesses. And they really had more autonomy. And there were changes in inheritance laws at the time that I it was actually one of the sparks of ins- like the very nerdy sparks of inspiration for this book. We're like changing inheritance laws like women could inherit more. And so, you know, people like Juana were actually like eligible to inherit like more land than they had been before um, this period. So it was a period of change in which not only are women experiencing more autonomy and agency in their lives than they had been before, but also in 1821, there was a law passed called the Plan of Iguala, which um, basically part of it said that everybody in Mexico is equal. And this was really radical because in the Spanish Americas during the colonial period, there was a caste system. So the casta system was one in which your social standing um, and therefore, you know, your ability to have social mobility, Mm -hmm. to move up in the world, uh, your lot in life, your ability to like care for yourself and your family was determined by your racial makeup. That being one of four things, Um, white Spaniard from Spain, born in Spain, um, somebody of white Spanish descent born in the Americas, uh, someone who had um, an indigenous background or someone who had a black African background and any mix of those. So um, this this 
this law said everybody was equal. And so there were all of these rules that before that existed in the Spanish Americas before were now effect like on paper, right, right. no longer applied. But in reality, like I read a lot of primary source documents that showed like, no, there was still quite a lot of racial dis- discrimination against yeah. people of mixed and indigenous and black backgrounds in Mexico. And there still is quite a lot. So it's something that extends to this day. But in uh, the period immediately following Mexico's War of Independence, I, th- I just thought it was a really interesting period to, like, you know, kind yes, of uncover all of these themes yeah. because they still exist in Latin America and in the Latin America diaspora today. Colorism, I think the actor Tenoch Huerta, who plays Namor in Wakanda Forever, has spoken a lot about, you know, the colorism that is really dominant in the Latin American film and TV industry. And so I think the themes that were dominant in this period in the 19th century 100 years ago are still really relevant today. Absolutely. And I thought you just did an incredible job of taking, I mean, this is, these are complex topics and the history is so complicated, but I love the way that you kind of pare it down and allow readers to experience it and see it through the individual stories of your characters. You did an amazing job of that. I mean, really. And it's like, this is not a book about war, but it is a book about the fallout of war and Mm -hmm. the social implications and tensions and divisions that result from that. And I just thought I was completely taken with how you incorporated that into the story. You did an incredible job. And I feel like your research, I mean, the research you did really, it had to have been one of the reasons that this book felt so accessible, even to someone who does not have nearly the knowledge you have on this topic. Oh, I'm so glad because, you know, as a, as I just finished my PhD at the University of Chicago and, you know, I remember one of my, one of my dear friends who's now a professor at Johns Hopkins. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Who's now a a really, really sharp man. I, I adore him. He, I remember him saying, he was like, you know, Isabel, you're always looking for the story. In this history. Yeah, and I yeah. was like, what's wrong with that? Because he, he, he was like, he's more of like a big ideas, themes mm. kind of person. But he was like, Isabel, you always look for the story. Like, where's the gossip in this primary <laughs> source? Where's the hook? Where's the story? And I was like, I can't help it. I'm a storyteller. And so yeah. the way I taught my classes at the University of Chicago was very much driven by my interest in following the story because, you know, I taught medieval Islamic history. It is a world wow. away oh my gosh. <laughs> from the content of the Hacienda. Um, but I like to think, you know, I even used, there was one class that I taught where I used historical novels to teach certain periods of Ottoman history. And so I oh had students, gosh. this was their midterm. It's like my favorite assignment I have ever graded in my life, which is not something you hear people say often. No, <laughs> definitely <stops>. not. <laughs> um, but I assigned um, different novels to my students to pick apart and examine in light of the history they had learned, what did the author write that accurately reflected the time period? Wow. It was That is so cool. I wish I could have taken a class from you when I was in school. That's amazing. Well, you basically have to get a class from me now (laughs) that you've read the Hacienda because that's the way I like to teach. And even though like teaching for me in historical fiction is kind of a loaded subject because, um, and this might be a bit of a tangent, but I'm going to take it anyway. I think um, one thing that uh, really took me aback when I started, you know, talking to people about the Hacienda, when it was announced, when it was, you know, started to, like, creep into the world and into people's consciousnesses. There is an expectation, I think, especially for marginalized writers, but especially, especially for writers of color and historical fiction to, air quotes, teach something mm. to the mm. reader. Like, there must be something of value to be taught mm. in historical fiction. And I don't necessarily believe that. Um, And I don't want that responsibility as a storyteller because my job now is not to teach history. I left that behind. My job is to tell you a really nice little lie (laughs) and to sweep you away with like this yarn that I'm spinning. Um, And I don't want to be beholden to history. You know, there are things in the Hacienda that I like twisted and changed um, to like fit the story I was telling, because all the historical research that I've done, at the end of the day, you don't want to be reading an academic article about this period. No. You want to read a story. So yeah. everything that I researched was, that was included in the book was there because it was in the service of the story. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes, oh, you certainly have never done this, but like other interviewers like ask, I, I, I don't know, sometimes like questions where if you you know, kind of unpack them a little bit. It's like, okay, well, what are you teaching me? Right. You know, the white reader about your culture. And it's like, Mm. well, maybe you shouldn't approach books by people of color that way. But like, absolutely. Sometimes some readers do. And I think that's a a burden 
um, that I hope writers of color in the future, especially writers of historical fiction, um, and sometimes even a fantasy, especially fantasy that is informed by uh, the historical past, don't have to bear in the future. I think we're definitely moving in that direction. But it is something that I've experienced where I'm like, oh, you know, I did teach. Like, that's something I know how to do. Right. Um, I'm not doing it now. That's not what you're here to (laughs) do. No, 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 not at all. I mean, I can only co-sign that and say that I hope that that is an experience that fewer and fewer people have, you know, moving forward. That's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I am interested in what you, you know, say about research. And I I think I heard an author say once that the only reason, I'm going to paraphrase her probably a little bit wrong, but something to the effect of the only reason that she does the amount of research she does is so that she can trick readers more effectively because she needs people to buy into certain details that are true to life so that she can then create authenticity with all the other stuff that she's making up. I love that. (laughs) I love that because I think especially with my second book where the the history was just so broad and so fraught and so distinctly colored by authorial bias— there were parts where I was like, do you know what? I actually just need this information so I can, like, you know, squeak my characters into this historical period a yeah. little more snugly and trick everyone into believing. Yeah, You know, it's a game of smoke and mirrors. Yeah. I think when you read the Hacienda, there's sometimes people ask um, about certain details. And I'm like, oh, no, I straight up made that up. Yeah. Or I straight yeah. up, I twisted that, yeah. you know? Like, I don't know what kind of dress or glassware. Like, right. well, that's not the point. Some aspects of material <laughs> yeah. culture, you know, are tricky to get at in the sources. And so sometimes I'm like, yep, I do not know what kind of underwear people in this period are wearing. And <laughs> you know what? If you have an image in your head of the underwear that Beatriz or Andres is wearing, good for you, because I tricked you. <laughs> that is, I mean, that's awesome. But you know, it's something that speaks to something that I think was probably my favorite part of this book. And it's something I love about Gothic literature in general, which I think you capture so beautifully is just the immersion in vibes to come back to that word again. I mean, the vibes in this book are so completely immersive. And I felt like I was totally transported in this story. And there's a special magic to books like this one where you open it up and you just fall into this whole world that the author has crafted. And you do that so impeccably. And Thank you so much. Because that's the experience I want as a reader. Yeah. If I start reading a historical novel and I'm bombarded by detail that doesn't serve the story, but it's kind of like the author being like, see, see how much work I did? Now you reader too will experience the work I did, which I have, I am absolutely guilty of this, having committed this sin in previous drafts. I remember I sent my agent a novella. She wrote me back saying, Isabel, this is very dense. Dense. I love it. Dense. I was like, thanks. Okay. I get it. Um, detail must be in service of the stories. Like yeah. when we open a book, we want to be swept away. Yeah. We want that escapist experience. Yeah. And I think I especially wanted that when I was writing The Hacienda because I finished writing it in April of 2020. We were all extremely anxious. We were all in a in lockdown. I was in New York City. Yeah. I just moved there with my husband. And, you know, we could hear sirens wailing and otherwise the city was dead quiet. And there was nothing to listen to but our own worries, you know, running around in our head on loop. Yeah. I think of this book a little bit because, you know, after all, it is a story about being trapped in a house. I right. think yeah. <laughs> it is a little bit of a relic of that period for me emotionally when I look back on it. Um, but also it saved me a little bit because I was so anxious. I think we all, all were at that time. And so what I did is I poured all of that energy into this book and I wanted it to sweep me away because at the time I was like reading fantasy, I was reading horror and nothing brought me the escapism I so desperately wanted and needed at that time. And so I made it for myself by absolutely submerging myself in this book for hours and hours on end every day, like writing six or 8,000 words a day. Wow, It was insane. Like this book, (laughs) I finished the first draft of this book in like a fever dream. It was... It was wild. Well, I mean, but that is that's completely fascinating. It totally tracks with my experience reading it as well. And the isolation in this story is something that I absolutely loved about it. And I think a lot about because I obviously read as widely as I possibly can mm-hmm. within like crime fiction and horror and suspense. And I've been thinking a lot recently about how contemporary, you know, technology must make it really hard for writers who are setting their stories in the present day. 100%. You know, like how can you actually create a location in which your character can't just pull out their iPhone and use Google Maps or Reader, call I do for not help? Know. Like, I, I literally <laughs> do not know. And this is why I write historical fiction. Well, I was going to say, I was thinking about in prepping for this interview, I was like, oh my gosh, she did a brilliant thing, not only because the historical setting just adds this like layer of like texture to the story, but also your character is completely at the mercy of this house and the spirits within it and the people around her who are convinced that she's 
losing her mind or trying to convince her that she's losing yeah. her mind. Because there's no way she can reach out. Her letters to her exactly. mom go unanswered. Yep. Uh, Rodolfo doesn't seem to believe her. You know, she asks one priest for help and he tattles on her to, to her husband. And right. she's like, oh, great. More gaslighting. Um, I actually was uh, a NaNoWriMo coach this year. And one of the oh, questions, wow. it was really fun. So cool. I'm really passionate about Na- National Novel Writing Month for the uninitiated NaNoWriMo. Um, and so one question I got from a reader was like, how do you negotiate, you know, having phones right book yeah and i was like girl i do not know like i, don't. I avoid that like <laughs> the plague absolutely i wrote a portal fantasy once and one of my critique partners was like why doesn't this teenager at the beginning like why isn't she on instagram why isn't she on her phone and i was like because they don't want to write phones yeah. yeah i don't want anybody in my books to have phones because it makes communication too easy yep and i just i don't know I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how people do it either. I am not a writer. I have no clue how people do I it. Salute I salute <laughs> contemporary writers. You do an incredible amount of witchcraft in your books to, to like kind of work around the technology. Because it's also one thing that's really tricky about tech in writing is that things that seem so contemporary and of the moment can seem deeply dated. Yeah, like that's true. Five years later. That's really true. Like why would a teenager be using Instagram at this point in time? Right. They wouldn't be. They would be, I don't know, on Snapchat, TikTok. I yeah. don't know. Who knows? <laughs> L- re- listener, dear listeners, eight years in the future will think this is horribly dated. Yeah. I yeah. had a writing instructor once tell me that he thought he was enormously clever writing this urban fantasy years ago. And he had one scene that he deeply regrets where characters like looked up directions on MapQuest and oh printed gosh, Map out Quest. the instructions. <gasps> Stop it. That's was, so this funny. was like his <laughs> cautionary tale of like be careful with yeah. technology in your fiction because what can what seems like very of the moment or like seamlessly integrated into the contemporary present in 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 one year can seem absolutely passe the next. Well you've totally avoided that problem, yep. I think. <laughs> on purpose. Masterfully done. <laughs> Masterfully done. Okay, we cannot conclude this interview without quickly touching on a word you just said, which is witchcraft yes. and how that factors into this book. Yes. Um, you, and it's no spoiler to say, your priest character. Yes. Tell us a little bit about his unusual gifts that yes. he has. So Padre Andres is a character, you know, and Beatriz, I've said before, is the heart of this book. Yeah. You know, she's a fighter. She's the protagonist. Yeah. But I think Andres is this book's soul because he really embodies so many struggles that I faced as a young person and continue to face now, um, struggles of identity, of being the child of parents from two different cultural and two different religious backgrounds that are sometimes at war with one another, mm-hmm. and being plagued from a very young age by questions of identity, belonging, and of faith. And so that's the part of me that went into Andres. And for that reason, like, he's a very—I'm deeply fond of him. And honestly, it makes me want to cry thinking about how he's been received by readers. Because I hear from readers all the time that they really—that his story really resonated with them. And that makes me feel so much less alone. So he is a young man who grew up um, knowing that he had— witchcraft abilities that were inherited from both sides of his family. And I won't go into any more detail because of spoilers, but those two parts of himself are at war. And um, that echoes his experience as a mestizo or somebody of mixed race um, who was whose father was white, a uh, white Spaniard born in Spain and who, whose mother was indigenous um, in this period and how it affects his position in society, how he operates in the world, what he's able to do and what he's not able to do in the world. And so to protect him from the Spanish Inquisition, which was active in Mexico at the time that he was uh, a young person, although it wasn't active in Mexico at the time that the book is set, Um, his mother wants him to become a priest because she thinks that'll save his soul. And his grandmother is like, ah, we're going to hide you in plain sight, aren't we? And she thinks it's delightful. I love it. <laughs> At the beginning, he wants nothing to do with it, but he finds immense solace in the church. Yeah. Um, so in, in many ways, uh, he was a very unexpected character for me because— I didn't intend for him to, to have a major role in this book at all. Wow. At all. I kind of just wanted Beatrice to have someone on whom she could rely on in the church. Yeah. You know, my experience of the church and many people's experience experiences with the church can be kind of like dicey. You don't really Mixed. know who to trust. You don't really <laughs> yeah. know who to trust. Yeah. Uh, you don't know what to share with them, especially if it's something to do with the supernatural. Like yeah. you don't want to be told you're crazy, especially as a woman. Absolutely. Especially as a woman. There was a moment when I was drafting this book in like this feverish haze in which I drafted this book where uh, Padre Andres comes to Hacienda San Isidro and he kind of walks it around, susses it out, 
gets a bit of a fright, and he and uh, Beatrice retreat to a certain part of the house, like close the door, light some candles, and they're like, okay, we're safe here. And I am a very visual writer, and so I kind of watch a scene, the scene unfold in my head at, like a movie wow, as yeah. I'm writing um, and, and just write down everything I see. And so I, my fingers were flying across the keyboard, and I'm watching this man in my head walk into this room, walk in a circle, pause, take a piece of charcoal from his pocket, crouch on the ground, and begin to draw. And I heard this voice in my head, like, so clearly. It was as if somebody was whispering right in my ear, saying, he is a witch. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I lifted my hands off the keyboard because I had not planned that. Like, wow. I, 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 I'm I, very type A. We've talked about yeah, this before. Yeah. I'm a planner. I'm an organizer. I outline a very... Uh, honestly, too aggressively, um, <laughs> because there are moments that can pop through when you're writing like this that absolutely take you by surprise. Yeah. And it felt like somebody else was like guiding my hands or wow. like just like he is a witch. And I knew from that moment that like this book was never going to be the same. Yeah. Because he was not supposed to be a witch. He was just supposed to be ye old priest. You I, know, I've got a whole other dimension to his character. Exactly. Yeah. And I had to go back to the beginning and re-outline the whole thing with this in mind. But, you know, this book could not be itself without him. No. It couldn't. I mean, he is an incredible character. The interplay between between him and Beatrice is incredible. I mean, I'm I'm so glad that he developed in the way or showed himself to be the oh, kind yeah, of character. Absolutely. That he and it was his be. voice that I first That's heard, amazing. like when I was it was like literally on a dark and stormy night in Mexico City in 2019 <laughs> while I was on my honeymoon. I was lying awake in the middle of the night after this rejection, thinking, like, okay, well, I better start turning the story idea over in my head because I guess I'm gonna write a horror book next. And it was like one in the morning. My husband was asleep. I was trying to get back to sleep, listening to the rain. And I just heard this voice begin narrating what is now the first chapter of the Hacienda. And I like snatched my phone off the nightstand and started writing it down as fast as I could because I was like, well, dear writers, if you have an idea in the middle of the night, write it down. You will not have it in the morning. Yeah. We have all learned this the hard <laughs> way. Um but that was his voice. And so it was wow. his voice that brought me to the threshold of Hacienda San Isidro and brought me inside for That's the first time. Amazing. So I, yeah, this book would not be the same without him. I mean, you've written two incredible characters who really, they come to life on the page in such a real way. I felt like I was getting to know them and falling in love with them throughout this story. And I'm just, I'm so glad that they both kind of developed the way they did. It is they're incredible, and I love them both Thank so much. Thank you. Thank you. People are always asking me about prequels about Andreas, <laughs> yeah. sequels. Yeah. And I'm like... Talk to my publisher, guys. I mean, I would be all for it, all for it. <laughs> yeah, pound down the doors of Penguin Random We'll House. start a petition. We'll yes. start a petition right now. So based on this whole conversation, it's safe to say you love all things creepy and spooky. I do. Which I obviously do as well. And I know when I want my kind of spooky fix, I turn to a book like yours, like The Hacienda. So what do you turn to? Do you like turn to other horror novels? Are you a spooky podcast listener? Tell us where you get your creepy content. I am a podcast person for sure. Amazing. I do not. My husband, I've late in the last few years, I've like kind of brought him over to the dark side where every like spooky season we have like a spooky season movie marathon where we oh watch TV shows that are scary. Relationship goals. I love it. <laughs> it took, but you know, for a few years he wasn't like not into that stuff at all. Yeah. So I um, listen to podcasts while I'm like cleaning, commuting um, on planes because I get a lot of anxiety when I fly. And I find that if I listen to scary podcasts like ghost stories mm -hmm. on planes, um, I'm so scared. That I'd have no energy to be anxious anymore. There is something to pro that, though. Tip, pro I, tip. Yeah. No, seriously, I was just telling my brother because my brother was, like, making fun of me because I was, you know, really anxious about something. And I was like, I think I'm just going to watch, like, Halloween. It'll really, like, calm me down. Literally. He was like, what's wrong with you? But I was like, when you're watching something or it's listening like to something, tactic. it's a distraction. 100%. You can't be worried about the real world when you're worried about Michael Myers. Exactly. Like it's, you know. <laughs> exactly. So for me, my drug of choice is the Snap Judgment podcast Spooked. Okay. The storytelling is... If you could see my face right now. It is so good. It is so good. It's so well produced. Um, it's got a lot of really diverse stories, mm -hmm. stories from all over the world um, that just keep you up at night. You know, there's Amazing. some stories that I listened to on that podcast years ago that are like absolutely buried in the back of my brain where I'm just like, how? And they're real people telling their stories. Oh, wow. That's uh, to really interviewers. Cool. So yeah. it's not like it's not fiction. Yeah. Um, it is like very tidily produced. So um, it's not like a freewheeling, long, yeah. windy interview. They're really tight stories. Um, but yeah, the it, it, they're incredible. I love them. So Snap Judgment, 
spooked. spooked. Okay. Yes. That, I'm going to check that new out episodes. <laughs> I think it's every fall, but there's a huge back catalog. Um, Amazing. It's so, so good. Yeah. I Amazing. also... What other scary podcasts? I was into folklore for or lore, lore, lore yeah. for a while. I was yep. into lore for a while. I kind of fell out of love with it. Did you ever do the black tapes? No. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, there's that's one I really like uh, for um, listeners who speak Spanish. Um, Leyendas Urbanas uh, MX. Okay, it's called Urban Legends MX, which MX is Mexico. Um, where this, it's kind of like it's still new. It's still like kind of got that like you know, unfinished edge to it. Yeah. But this uh, guy kind of just tells urban legends from all over Mexico. So there's Amazing. lots of like witchcraft stories, lots of ghost stories. There's stuff about Santa Muerte. There's yeah. stuff about uh, cryptids. There's stuff about ghosts, about serial killers. I listened to this great story about like a haunted radio studio in Mexico City. Like, wow. just incredible stuff. So if you speak Spanish, Leyendas Urbanas MX is like incredible. I love Amazing. it. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you for the recommendations. Yes. <laughs> so also in English, Monstras. Ooh, okay. Mon- or Monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's hosted by two young women who talk about um, like ghost stories and cryptids from Latin American folklore. Oh, yeah. Wow. It's fantastic. Can I ask Monstras. a really uneducated question? Yes. Um, what is a cryptid? a cryptid? I don't know. Like, cryptid, like, <laughs> like, like werewolves or chupacabra. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. All right. Got yeah. it. Got you it. <laughs> I, think, I think that's what they're called. No, I'm, like, sh- I'm, you're, I'm sure you're right about that. Yeah. I just didn't know that term. Yeah. That's so, pretty like, cool. Okay. So Spooked has some of these stories, too. Like okay. strange creatures. And then Ooh, I, I like the it. New Jersey, like is it the Jersey Devil? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Scary stuff like that. Very cool. I'm going to look all of these up. That's amazing. And I know that we are going to have a new book to look forward to from you coming in yes, August. Can you could tell us any little sneak peek about the new book. Absolutely. So I actually, we're recording this at a time where I just announced it. So I'm like buzzing with excitement about it. And the cover it. is gorgeous. I love Everyone the go cover look the cover up. Pieces. So the cover, so as you're Googling this on your phone while you listen, um, it's called Vampires of El Norte. Um, and it is about, let's see, it is set during the Mexican-American War in 1846 um, from an area of northern Mexico slash south Texas, which is where my family is from. And it's about two childhood friends, best friends, who, or I guess childhood sweethearts, who are separated by a tragedy and reunite nine years later on the eve of the Mexican-American War. And if that wasn't enough to deal with... <laughs> They're also vampires, you know, really scary, monstrous vampires. Like none of this Edward Cullen stuff. Like we love, we love Twilight. We stand. We love what she did for young adult literature. It's amazing. The movie's legendary. But, you know, this is something a little different. This is a little creepier, a little more monstrous. These vampires are prowling around and men are dropping dead. And so the, the... The protagonist, Nena Serrano, who um, is a curandera or a healer, uh, is you know, a bit dumbfounded at why all of these people on the rancho where she lives are falling ill in specific ways. And, you know, she doesn't have a lot of time to, like, she kind of has to solve things on the fly. Yeah. At the same time, she's dealing with her, <laughs> I guess you could say, ex-boyfriend from nine years ago who oh just vanished without a trace, reappears, you know, wanting to be all buddy-buddy with her again. And she's like, no. So it's childhood best friends to lovers. Um, it's got... Uh, Cowboys. <laughs> this Nestor, incredible. the love interest, is a vaquero or a cowboy, and it's set on a ranch. There are lots of horses. Um, there's a big battle scene in Matamoros. You know, writing this book almost broke me. It was real. Second books are very difficult. I have yet to talk to a single author who's like, second book was it's a, a curse. walk in the park. No, no, no. It's just, this is the thing. It's like suddenly, um, it's a sophomore slump. Suddenly yeah. when all the world is, it feels like all the eyes in the world are on you waiting for the next book. And you know, the Hacienda was received in such a way that I felt like I don't want to disappoint my readers. Yeah. I want to deliver the same kind of experience again. And I will warn you that this book is not the same experience. You know, it's not all set in house. It's not as claustrophobic. The fear of the dark that you're dealing with is not the dark in dark, scary houses. It's a fear of a d- the dark when you're exposed, you know, when you're out in the wilderness and there's stars overhead and lots of long shadows and you don't know what's out there. Oh, my gosh. And there's the only person to guard your back is your ex-boyfriend from nine years ago. <laughs> I, I cannot wait to read this. This sounds incredible. I can't wait for you to read it, too. I think it's more swashbuckling. Um, it's actually more romantic with than the Hacienda, mm-hmm. um, but it also has those horror and uh, 
I guess you could say, in historical elements that yeah. I think readers of the Hacienda will really enjoy. Oh, my gosh. Well, I will literally follow you wherever you go. I loved the Hacienda so much. Thank so I so can't much. wait to read the next book. And now, before we say goodbye, can we close things out with a quick little lightning round here? Yes. All right. Hit me up. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. What is one thriller you think should be on everyone's to-read pile? Uh, Simone St. James' The Book of Cold Cases. Coffee or tea while writing? Coffee. <laughs> writing in the morning or writing at night? Morning, 100%. What's your favorite scary movie? <gasps> the Others, the one with Nicole Kidman. Ooh, great answer. Are ghosts real? Yeah. Um, and what are you reading now? Right now, I'm in a huge reading slump. I'm in a huge reading slump. I'm Worst. struggling. It is so, so rough. But my favorite things that I've read recently um, are The Foxglove King by Hannah Witten. It's a, a very dark high fantasy. It's got necromancy. It's got a very, like, it's got a very fun love triangle vibe going on. It's lush. It's dark. It's, um, it's not gothic, but it definitely has some of that atmos- those atmospheric elements. Mm-hmm. And then also, speaking of gothic atmospheric elements, I adored Alexis Henderson's House of Hunger. Have Ooh, you read it? No, I haven't. Ooh, I'm, it's ri- I'm writing it down. a gothic fantasy um, inspired... Um, there's some like Hungarian countess who like drank blood. I don't remember her name. It's like it's completely escaping me. But basically the premise is that there's this young woman who in order to, um, you know, get herself out of a financial rough spot, a familiar premise, uh, becomes employed by this um, incredibly wealthy woman in this very decadent, lush, debaucherous uh, society. Wow. Um, and her job is as a blood maid. So she gives blood. No. Like literally drains blood for these people to drink. And so like blood is considered like, you know, a fine thing like wine and different people have different tastes. And so she's got like, you know, the best vintage. (laughs) And so it's dark. It gets a little gory. It gets it's very gothic. It's very tense. It's very sapphic. So it's like we love it. Everything about it. This is called House of Hunger. House of Hunger. How have I not read this? Alexis Henderson. House of Hunger. Also the cover. Speaking of like covers that are good house of hunger i want it on a poster on my wall it's gorgeous this is amazing well i'm gonna be looking this up and getting myself a copy as soon as we're done here it's out now (laughs) it's out now folks well thank you so much this was so much fun thank you for taking the time to chat with me it was my pleasure abby thank you so much for having me It was so much fun speaking with Isabel today. The Hacienda is available now and will be coming in a brand new paperback edition this summer. Also keep an eye out for Isabel's new novel, Vampires of El Norte, which will be coming out this summer as well. Thank you so much, Isabel, for coming in and sitting down with me for this conversation. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review or rating on your preferred podcast platform. Feel free to send me any questions, book recommendation requests, or comments at criminaltypes at prh.com. This show is edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our music was composed and performed by Shearwater. Criminal Types is a production of the Knopf Doubleday Publishing Group and Penguin Random House Media. Thanks for listening.